John chapter 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord! But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God! Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. What I want to talk to you today about is the idea that the faith of Jesus Christ and his announcement of forgiveness and peace to the Father, from the Father to his people, that that announcement is a kernel of the gospel, it's the center of the gospel, and that peace and forgiveness which is offered by Jesus Christ being the center of the gospel is a free offer but that free offer causes a new birth to take place in God's people. That is, there is something that transforms God's people, namely 
the word of Jesus Christ. And that word is actually not different than his revelation to Thomas that day. But as we're about to see through Thomas's words, Thomas comes to saving faith upon the revelation of Jesus. But then the rest of the New Testament, most specifically in this passage in 1 Peter, it tells us that just as Thomas has seen Christ, so we also are able to see Christ. That's a great mystery, and yet it's one, of the core, it's one of the first questions that new believers have or people who are searching out the Gospels or, or considering Christianity is, how can I believe in Jesus Christ if I didn't have the same opportunity that the disciples did? And so what we see in these two passages, them referring to each other, John leading to Peter, Peter referring in a way to the ideas that John presents, these passages show us that the very word of God is the means by which we see Jesus Christ. So earlier you heard a phrase, the three delivery systems of grace. We have a wonderful love of the Holy Spirit and his work and his person in this church. We also have a very wonderful love of the people of God, both the authority, the pastoral authority, as well as the authority in one another. That is, we are a discipling community. We, we receive input from brothers and sisters. We also encourage those around us. But I want to commend to you the reestablishing of the word of God as a primary importance as the word itself testifies to us. That's what we're going to see in both John and in Peter today. So very briefly, we're going to look at Christ's greeting of peace as an announcement of the gospel, as the very kernel of the gospel itself. We're going to move from that to John's purpose statement that he gives at the end of this chapter, though as you'll see, it's not the end of this book. So why does he put a concluding summary statement in the end of this chapter? It's because he wants to do something right after Thomas having done something. He wants to say something to his readers that they would comprehend what Thomas is experiencing. I want to look at how that salvation, that belief of Thomas, is also our belief in Christ. That is, Thomas sees Christ for who he is by seeing the result of Christ's work, and that exact same revelation is made available to you through the Word of God. That is how our salvation comes to us. I want to look at the nature of faith as a testing perseverance. That is, faith is something that perseveres through trials. It doesn't die in trials and then get, once the trial goes away, then you regain faith. It perseveres in the midst of trials. We're going to look at how that all culminates in the hope of salvation. What is the chief hope in the Christian life? Is it simply going to heaven? Is it simply escaping punishment? Or is it something, as I think Thomas saw that day, and I think Peter is wanting to explain to us, that the promise, the true hope of the Christian faith is something much more glorious than even the wonderful offer of escaping eternal punishment, and even greater than the wonderful offer of just residing in a harmonious state in some sense. That is, the nature of heaven is some sort of blessing. I think Peter is trying to get us to anticipate what the true eschaton is, what the summing up of all things in Christ will be for those who have their hope set upon him. So we're going to see what Peter says about that. So on the day of the resurrection, as soon as Christ greeted Mary, he then sent her on a mission. If you were here last week, we looked at this in great detail. The basic pattern is this, that Jesus is raised from the dead. Mary is looking for the Lord. When Mary sees the Lord, he first appears to her as a gardener. She supposed him to be the gardener. And then he calls her by name. He says, Mary. And she turns and says, Rabbanai, teacher. She recognizes him after he calls her by name, and then as soon as he calls her by name, he then commissions her with a task, go and tell my brothers that I am ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. The whole idea is that Jesus is communicating something to Mary that not only have I forgiven them, but now they have been, become my brothers. We looked at that very significant pattern, how John's gospel uses brothers to talk about Jesus's siblings. And then after this moment, the entire life and writings of John are changed forever. And in fact, John's epistles, even the book of Revelation, he almost never again uses the word disciples. 
If you've ever read 1 John, it's a book full of love. It's a book about the nature of the family of God and disciples as the children, sons, brothers of God, brothers of Christ. And so Jesus is announcing forgiveness and pardon, and then he commissions Mary with a task. That exact same pattern is repeated here in Jesus' encounter with the disciples. His opening words are not that they are brothers, but now that there is peace. He says, peace be with you. If you've ever been to a church with, uh, you know, kind of a classical liturgy, there are some times where they uh, have a, what is called a giving of peace or a, or a greeting of peace. And people in the church stand up and they greet one another. They say, peace be with you. It's a wonderful thing because it talks about the life of the community. We actually do that at the end of the service after the benediction when we have fellowship time. The point is, when you or I say, peace be with you, we are saying a wish I wish that peace would be with you. John Weiss does not have the power to cause peace to be with you. But the way that Jesus uses these words, it is not a wish. Jesus uses these words to announce the peace which is coming toward them. Just as he began his gospel saying the kingdom of God is at hand, and he told Mary, go tell my brothers so also here his first words to the disciples are an announcement of the peace which he has made, the peace which he has caused to come to pass, that Christ has satisfied the wrath of God against sin, that the Father lovingly sent the Son for that purpose and lovingly and freely received the Son's offering, atonement offering, for that purpose, and now through the death and resurrection of Christ, they can have peace with God. He says peace in order to confer it upon them. That is, Jesus's words cause them to receive the gospel. There is something in the offer and proclamation of the gospel that that seed, that word, takes root in the heart of those who God is drawing to himself. If you were here on Friday night, we talked about the idea of, of beginning to work with evangelism teams, people who are going to evangelize, you need to know that the offer of the gospel is an announcement to your hearers of the offer of pardon and reconciliation. The gospel is not, Jesus was raised from the dead, and now you can, if you work really hard enough or comprehend it all or search it out for yourself, you can find Christ. No, Christ is the one who comes into the locked room. He breaks through the barriers, so to speak, metaphysic, you know, metaphorically and metaphysically, reality-wise. He breaks through the barriers in this passage and announces peace to the disciples. I don't think this is just meant to be a history. I think it's also meant to be, John's kind of saying that even though the doors were locked, Christ made his way into the room despite the fact that the doors were locked. They're cowering in fear for they think the Jews are going to come and get them and he comes and announces peace. The peace which Christ offers his disciples, his followers in this account is not a ceasefire. A ceasefire is the temporary cessation of hostilities. If you've ever heard stories about wars, sometimes they have ceasefires. I remember in the story that I heard about World War I and World War II, at various times in the war, Christmas Day or Easter, sometimes the various factions would announce, we're not going to fight on Easter. We're not going to fight on Christmas. That is not the same as an enunciation of peace. Christ comes and says, the wrath of God has been removed. I have satisfied the very righteous burden that should come on all those who are estranged from the Father. But not only are you being adopted, but you're also being brought into a kingdom in which I am the Prince of Peace. That I myself am the cause of the peace that you will receive. That is, in coming into Christ's kingdom, he is the Prince of Peace, as Isaiah told us. He brings us by his word into the very peace of his reign. And Jesus announces this to his people. 
In speaking peace to them, Christ is preaching the gospel. In Ephesians 2, Paul tells the Ephesian church, he says that Christ came to those who were both near and who were both afar off, and he announced peace to them. He preached peace to them, reconciling to the Father. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul also says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That is, God has caused the barrier between his people and himself. He has caused that to be removed. And now the message of the gospel is to those who would place their hope and faith and trust. There is infinite mercy, infinite grace, complete trusting and acceptation with the Father God. That through the work of Christ, both his death on the cross and paying for sins and his resurrection, defeating death, making a reconciliation of the world to the Father, that now sons and daughters of Adam can now become sons and daughters of God. That is what the gospel is. The gospel is not, if you clean yourself up enough, if you approach God in the right manner, no, it is that God in Christ was coming and approaching you, and that by faith you can have life in his name. So upon announcing this peace, just as he did with Mary, he then commissions them on the same mission. Commissioning is bringing on a mission with you. Jesus commissions them and tells them, as the Father has sent me, am I sending to you? He then breathes on the Spirit to anoint them for this task. Without the Holy Spirit, you cannot proclaim the very word of Jesus Christ. The words of Jesus Christ must be attended with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The announcement of the free offer of grace in the gospel must be attended by the Holy Spirit's work. You cannot cause people to come to faith, nor can you yourself even hear it, by faith, unless the Holy Spirit is operating through you. Through his words, he announced their adoption, and through his words in this very same chapter, he brings them into the family business. I'm using that as a a metaphor. Jesus was a carpenter because Joseph was a carpenter, right? And so it should not surprise us in the least that when God tells us through Christ, you're being adopted into my family, oh, by the way, I want you to have the family image. I want you to look exactly like my son. I'm not going to just clean you up and put you in a corner and wait for you to die to come to my presence. No, I want to send you on the same mission. That's why Jesus says, as the Father has sent me. You see, some of the smallest words in the Bible contain the great relation. He's saying in the same manner, in the same quality, with the same power, and to the same end. That is, as the Father sent me and anointed me with the Spirit to demonstrate his power after my baptism, after going through the temptation of the wilderness, coming up in the power of the Spirit, Christ went into Israel and he proclaimed and revealed the nature of the Father. Jesus is telling his disciples, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. He says peace, he gives them the gospel, and then he commissions them. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. See, John uses these words, and when he had said this, to connect it. He could have just said, then he said right? John could have been in his words, and yet he's trying to say that this happened immediately after, and it has some sort of cause and effect relationship. He says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So I want to look now at Thomas's doubt. Thomas was not in the room. You think if you were reading the gospel, it would have been Peter who wasn't in the room, right? I don't know what Thomas was doing. Maybe he was on an errand, Maybe he was so afraid that he dare not even be found with the other 12. At that point, there were only 11. The word 12 is used as a, it's a metonymy. It's a, it's a word used in an exchange. So it's, it's the, like if you had a band, if they started a band, they might be called the 12, right? They lose their guitarist, they're still the 12, right? The point is that Thomas was not with the 12, right? John tells us that he wasn't with the 12. And Thomas is then visited a week later. But before he's visited, he hears the word of the disciples. But look at what Thomas does. He said 27, uh, sorry, before this, Thomas does not believe. But when Christ comes, 
Christ commands him to believe. Have you ever thought about this, that the gospel is not only a free offer, but an announcement of the true reality, the true nature of the world, that God has made peace through Christ, and so Christ therefore commands Thomas to believe? It's not simply an invitation. That is to say that human beings, small men and women, compared to the great glory of God, when confronted with the glory of God's redemption, they ought to recognize what God has done. And therefore, God rightly commands them to believe. In the book of Acts, Paul says that God has looked over the times of ignorance, and now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That it's not just a free offer, but also it is the only right response Therefore, it is commanded. He says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. What did Jesus give Thomas? Exactly what he wanted. Right? Isn't that interesting? That Thomas received exactly what he said he needed to believe. Now, does this happen today? Have you ever tried to play Thomas? It doesn't work like that for you. Why did it happen this way? Because Christ was wanting to demonstrate that God has provided everything which is necessary for men to come to faith. Not only the historical fact of Jesus' bodily presence, but also the reminders, the physical evidence of his atonement, and the fact that he was standing there talking to them proved not only his death, they were quite sure of his death, not only his resurrection, but now at the words of Jesus, the announcement of peace. We saw this week how people can know the facts of the crucifixion and resurrection, but unless they hear that God did these in order to invite you to come to new life in him, they cannot believe. They cannot believe. They cannot believe at all. They must absolutely hear the reconciliation offer. Paul takes up this same line of reasoning. He says that God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we beg you, we plead with you, be reconciled to God. That is exactly what Jesus is doing to Thomas. And look at what happens in verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. These are extremely significant words because he's not using them as you might use them. You know, if, you, if you're nailing something, right? If you're, and you hit your thumb, you might say, my Lord and my God. But you're not saying them in the way that Thomas is saying them. Because Thomas is referring to Jesus Christ. Now, you're saying, well, wow, this is not that big of a deal. People throughout the Gospels have seen Jesus. In fact, in John 1, Nathaniel says to Jesus, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the one anointed to sit on the throne of your father, David. You are the son of God, right? So, so how is this some great revelation of Jesus? Well, Thomas is saying these words in response to the physical evidence of Christ. That is, in seeing Christ, Thomas acknowledges Jesus to be both Lord and God. That is, Jesus identifies Thomas's response as an indication of belief, And in John's gospel, Jesus himself tells us what belief is. In uh, in verse 29, Jesus says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Thomas isn't just exclaiming to the heavens, talking to the Father, but he's talking to Jesus Christ himself. That is to say that Thomas has come to eternal life for he knows who Jesus is as Lord and God. In John 8, 24, Jesus said, Therefore I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, ego and me, that, that's the, the words that Jesus used, that I am statement is a claim of divinity. Those are the words that Yahweh uses himself. Jesus tells the people in John 8 that unless you believe that I am Yahweh, you will die in your sins. So true belief, therefore, is an acknowledgement not just of the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection. If you simply take joy in the fact that a man came back to life, you do not have any salvation. You must also understand who that man is as God. Jesus said in John 17, 3, he said, this is eternal life that, you, that they know you 
and they know the Christ that you have sent. What does it mean to know someone? If you found out that one of your best friends was actually like an alien from another planet, think about this. Could you say that you actually knew who they were? Isn't the nature of a person identical to knowing the nat- the, who that person is? If you, if you found out one of your friends was actually like a robot or an android, you know, you've ever seen these movies where they turn out to be somebody that's not really a human, it would kind of call you into question of whether you truly knew who they were. Jesus tells us that Thomas believes because Thomas, when presented with the evidence of Christ's resurrection, knows that Christ is God. It's not enough to know that Christ raised from the dead. People, you yourselves, must know that he did so as both God and man. When confronted with the work of Christ in the resurrection, Thomas was led to a saving knowledge of Jesus in his person. And those two ideas, the work of Christ and the person of Christ, are so married together, they are inseparable. Without understanding the person of Christ, Jesus being a sinless man, being the incarnate God, then you do not understand the quality of his work. But at the same time, his work on the cross and his work in coming out of the grave tell you concretely the nature of the saving God who in Christ came near. It not only is a glorification of the incarnation, it's also an explanation of what the crucifixion and resurrection even mean at all. Jesus is saying that Thomas has come to true faith because he knows who he is. So at this point, right after Jesus' words, John gives us this summary statement that is actually kind of in the wrong place in a sense. John does not end his gospel here. He actually has another two encounters which he wants to record. But since it's near the end, John includes a summary statement and he does it right here for this specific purpose. He wants to capture this belief that Thomas has come to and to explain that that is his purpose in writing. John tells us in, not in quite more than this, he tells us that this belief, Thomas's belief, should become our belief. Right after Jesus says, do you believe? John then includes a summary statement of his gospel, a concluding synthesis of the whole point of his book. He says this, now Jesus did many other signs, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's intention, therefore, is that through hearing his gospel, people would come to a believing knowledge of who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through believing they would have life. So moving really quickly to Peter's epistle, I want to look at how Peter actually refers directly back to the same ideas, and he tells us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has done something wonderful for us. Peter tells us that for God's church, John's desire has come to pass. He says this, that Christ's resurrection is an opening up. It's a making available. The Puritans use these phrases like the covenant of life opened. I love that type of phrase because what they're saying is that Jesus Christ in his work made available. The book of Hebrews says that we draw near through a new and living way. That is through the veil of Christ's flesh. We approach God. So Peter is saying that this exact same thing has taken place for the church of God. The Christian hope, therefore, is the confident assurance of God's ability and desire to do good to us. He says that they've been born again to a living hope. Look at this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Remember two weeks ago when we looked at John's gospel. And in John's gospel, he described those who have come to faith. That those who became children of God did not, come, did not become children of God by their own will or by the will of the flesh, but on the will of God. Peter says that God was the one who caused us to be born again. That through the announcement of the gospel, something has happened to these Christians that Peter is writing. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
That is as glorious and as wonderful as the atonement on the cross is without the resurrection, there is no new life. Peter is saying that through the resurrection of Jesus and all that it entails, all it presupposes that God has caused something to come to pass for Peter's hearers. He has caused this to come to pass, been born again. They have been given new life and not only to have hope, but a hope for the future. There are past tense, present tense, and future tense in this in these very verses. He has caused us, that's past, to be born again to a living hope. That hope is living, it's not dead, to an inheritance. That is, this hope is going somewhere. I love this about the Christian faith. It is not just rooted in historical events. It does not just affect my day-to-day It is telling me that I have a hope which should be alive. That living hope, just as James says that living faith is active, that living hope should be producing in me something. If it's alive, it's reproducing. And that's exactly what Peter is getting at. That our salvation, our new birth, was not accomplished by the physical sight of Christ, but by hearing the word of Christ. Remember, Thomas sees Jesus, then Jesus responds to Thomas's words, my Lord and my God, saying, do you now believe? Blessed are those who believe even though they do not see. In 1 Peter 1.23, this is going a little bit outside of our text. It's just a little bit later in the chapter. Peter explains how they were born again. He says in verse 3, you've been born again to a living hope. Later on in the chapter, he says how they were born again. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. That is, the word of God is the seed of God. And when it takes root in the heart of someone being drawn to God, it causes the new birth to take place. They have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Just as Thomas saw Jesus in the flesh, so also we hear by his apostles of what he has done. Jesus Christ, in commissioning the apostles, as we saw earlier in our reading today, sent them on the mission to proclaim peace to those who were near and peace to those who were far off. Paul's manner of of witnessing the gospel in various cities was first he went to the Jews, those who were near in covenant, and then he went to the Greeks, those who were far off in covenant, away from the covenant. This is exactly what the apostles did. They obeyed Christ, and throughout the ages, God has caused this to come to pass wherever his gospel is preached. Part of the reason why churches recede or proceed is whether or not they are faithful to the word of God in proclaiming it and commending it as effective as 1 Peter 1.23 says that they have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. In 1 John, John tells us that there is a fellowship that the apostles had in the things that they've seen and touched and that they testify and that testimony is the cause of the fellowship for the, he's writing to the Ephesian church, I believe, for that church. That is the Ephesian church, those believers in Ephesus were brought into the very same fellowship that the apostles had one-on-one with Jesus himself. That is, Jesus commissions them, they go, and it really did come to pass. And not only did it come to pass, according to Peter, it is still happening. Do not envy Thomas at all. I hear this all the time. Oh, if I could have just been with the 12. Wouldn't it have been cool, John, if you know we could have hung out and seen the transfiguration? Brothers and sisters, the transfiguration was before the resurrection. The transfiguration and even the resurrection itself were before Pentecost. Jesus told us himself that it is to your benefit that I depart. And yet the majority of Christians today, in their infancy of understanding what they've been given in the Holy Spirit, they say things like, man, I really, you know, if I would have seen Jesus, I would really believe. This is the predominant obstacle or objection that atheists and humanists have against the gospel. They say, well, if God is real, why doesn't he come down and show us himself? Brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus did. He presented the Father 
And after ascending to the Father, he then sent another helper, one who is much greater than Jesus in this regard, that he, because he is not corporeal, can indwell you. And not only that, Jesus said that when I send the Spirit, I and my Father will make our abode in you through him. You've been invited into a new life. You've been invited to the very family of God, that by the Spirit, you can know At one point, I can't remember if it's Peter or Paul. Someone will know. I think it's Paul. He says, imitate these things and the God of peace will dwell with you. Do you know what that means? I'm not asking if you know the verse. I'm asking, do you have experiential knowledge? Do you know that that promise is true? Do you know that the God of peace will abide with you? Do not envy Thomas at all, for in the gospel, you have as much revelation as he did. Paul, when writing to the Galatian Christians in, in Galatians 3, 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whom Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Is It is not anywhere near Jerusalem. Okay, it's not within eye shot. What is Paul saying? is that through the preaching ministry of he and the other apostles, the team that was with him, by the words that they said, both in the historical fact of the resurrection and crucifixion, that they demonstrated Jesus as crucified. That is, in some sense, though not seeing with their eyes, he was publicly portrayed. They didn't draw a picture. They didn't put up a painting. They didn't hire artists to make an icon and then have the Galatians adore it. They preached the gospel and the Galatians came to faith. And by hearing and by faith, the Father supplied the Spirit to them. And so the New Testament tells us that Christ's crucifixion and resurrection are constantly being represented through the words of the gospel. This is why the Protestant church throughout Ever since the Reformation, we're now coming up to the 500 year of celebrating the Reformation, that ever since that Reformation began, the Word of God is the cause. Martin Luther, when asked about what he was able to do in Germany, he says, I did nothing but preach the Word. The Word did it all. That is why, the, new, the reason he said that is because of what the New Testament says about the Word of God, that through Paul's preaching, he presented Christ as crucified to the Galatian church. So John and Peter are testifying together, hearing what John said, that the reason he wrote his gospel is that so that they would believe and know who Jesus is as the Son of God. Peter also says that you've been born again. You would have new life through his name. You've been born again to a living hope through the word of God. Therefore, seeing isn't believing, but rather believing is actually proof that you've seen. Have you ever heard that phrase, seeing as believing? For Thomas, that's kind of true. He did believe when he saw, but that was done in God's sovereignty to give you confidence that God has given everything necessary for belief. But for those who do not have that privilege, but rather have the greater privilege of the New Testament scriptures telling us how to interpret the Old Testament, that Christ is now more visible That is to say, in that day, he was in one room. He was plainly visible in a corporeal fashion, in a bodily fashion, to the twelve. He gave them a mission, and after they had done part of their mission, they began to write the record of their mission and of their doctrine. And that record publicly portrays Christ as crucified. It represents Christ. So, the salvation that Peter is talking about is an inheritance, and it's described in these wonderful terms. It's not able to perish. It's not able to be defiled. It's not able to fade. Think about what this is. Is Peter saying that in heaven, there's heavenly gold, right? Gold is something that is not perishable. It can't fade. It doesn't tarnish. It, it does oxidate a little bit, but that's just usually the coverings that are on it you can melt it down and and get back the same amount of gold that you put in. It doesn't get destroyed by fire. It melts and then re-solidifies. It doesn't fade. It doesn't tarnish over time. You can polish it right back to its former luster. Is he saying that you're going to get a bucket of gold coins in heaven? 
or a bed made of like angel feather pillows. <laughs> so many people think that the new heavens and the new earth, the final state of man with God, are just material goods. Brothers and sisters, we won't have any cause for concern. The new heavens and the new earth, when fully re- revealed, will be amazing and glorious, and they will be wonderful. But I think Peter's talking about something else. It is in this salvation in which we, we are called to persevere. He says, in this, and this is a relative pronoun, and it describes everything in verses 3 through 5, the salvation, the knowledge of God's causing us to be born again, everything that he includes in those verses. He says, in this salvation, though for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, may be found to result in praise and glory at what? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to see that in just a minute again, but just keep that in the back of your mind. The existence of trials should not cause you to doubt your salvation. This is one of the greatest reasons the prosperity gospel, even if not believed in total, even believed in a subtle version, is a deeply troubling heresy that ought to be rejected and plucked out wherever it is found. It is because the prosperity gospel teaches you, come to Christ, your life is going to be blessed. You're going to have money, you're going to have wealth, all your relationships are going to go well. The most righteous man who ever lived on the earth was abandoned by all of his friends and family. He was rejected by the priesthood of his country and his nation. He was wrongfully tried and wrongfully executed with with false witnesses. He was beaten before executed. Even in lethal injection today, we do not beat people before we execute them. And then he was executed naked and ashamed and mocked the entire process. Does God give blessings in that sort of sense to righteous people? Absolutely not. There is absolutely no proof of your righteousness to God based on your material blessings. It is only in the New Testament based upon the fruit of the Spirit being made manifest in your life turning from idols to serve a living, true God. That is what the gospel is about. It's a free offer of pardon. It is not a free offer of stuff. And those who cheapen the gospel, or if you're not preaching that sort of gospel, if you're subtly believing that sort of gospel, you are shortchanging yourself possibly on an eternal level. Because what Christ is offering, and I believe Peter is saying this in this passage, is something much greater than gold, much greater than silver, much greater than cars or nice relationships. It is peace with God forever. Not only peace, but as we're about to see, something beautiful. On the contrary, ongoing persistence in spite of trials should produce more assurance. That is to say that if you continue believing in Christ and trusting to Christ and repenting from sin and seeking God through the means of grace, all of those are evidences of the reality of what you believe. That is to say, if you believe Jesus Christ and abandon Christ in the middle of a trial, then that is proof that you should question your former claim of belief. If Christ is less precious than facing persecution, then you have not laid hold of Christ. If Christ is less precious than retaining a spouse, should you deny Christ, then you have not come to know who Christ is truly. You may know some facts about Christ, you may know some information about Christ, but you have not laid hold of Christ and Christ has not laid hold of you. The point is that assurance is based on the continuing of gaze. Faith is not based in me, it is based in Christ. And when I continue to believe upon Christ, despite every one of my circumstances, that is a great indication that I have true faith. This oftentimes takes other forms where, especially for new believers who are still clinging to former sins, that they love Christ, but they return to a former sin that that has so captured their heart. And so they doubt their salvation every time they sin because they have their salvation based on their record. If you have a walk that looks like waves every single day, 
God wants to explain to you that your faith, your assurance, your joy is based upon the object of your faith, not the quality of your faith. It is not based on how much I believe, how strongly I believe, but in who I believe. I believe in Jesus Christ, the one who defeated death. And if he defeated death, then he can defeat my ongoing sin and proclivity to darkness. That he's made me a new image and by his grace, through his spirit, walking after his spirit, he is producing the fruit of the spirit in my life. And my cause for joy, my, my emotional state as a believer should be more based upon Jesus Christ and his session as function of the Father than it should be based on how many hours has it been since I've sinned. That is what our faith is rooted on. It is rooted on Christ, not on the trials and circumstances around us. Peter goes on to commend them for steadfastness, and he describes it as evidencing the purity of faith. That is, faith without mixture. What I was just describing, faith in circumstances or faith in how long it's been since you've last failed, that is faith with dross. That's faith with mixture. Peter is saying that you ought to have faith with purity. Verse 8, though you do not, uh, sorry, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Maybe if a few seconds ago you were doubting whether or not you could rejoice in the midst of trials. Peter says that they're rejoicing, even though there's trials, with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Have you ever wanted to like, you know, worship God and you kind of felt in the moment, my physical limitations and my voice can't adequately express the joy that I have in Christ? That's what Peter's getting at. There was a, a great hymn. I actually played it at a wedding once. Somebody asked me to play, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise. What that's describing is that my voice alone is in, it's not able to fully express the type of joy and worship that I have because of what Christ has done in me. He says that you rejoice unto obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So love for Christ and belief in Christ without having seen Christ is actually proof that by faith you have seen Christ. Remember, Thomas was able to see. We're not able to see in the same way that Thomas saw, but the New Testament says that the word portrays Christ. So Peter then says that these assurances are that one will truly be saved. But here's my question. At the end of verse 9, he says, you will obtain the salvation of your souls. But is the salvation of souls only thing in view? I suggest that it's actually much more than just the salvation of our souls. That is, I will not perish forever, but I will live forever, being found faithful in Christ's work. Rather, it's something much greater than this verse uh, ends with because First Peter 1 is a complete thought. He says, look, look at this. He says, though you have not seen him, that's past tense, right? Mm -hmm. Though you do not see him now, or though you do not now see him. He, he highlights a lack of sight in two places. In the past tense, though you have not seen him, though you do not see him now, when you persist in this, you will obtain the salvation of your souls. What is Peter implying? If you go down to verse 13, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be what? at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is going to be a day, fellow believers, in which our Lord will return in bodily glory with the angels, with the glory of his Father, and he will be revealed in full clarity. This is not just saying at, after you die and go to heaven, that your soul being saved. He is saying something much greater that though you haven't seen him before, though you don't yet see him now, persist in hope. Get faith, acquire it through the means of God's grace and his word. Set your minds fully on the salvation that will re be revealed at what? the revelation of Jesus Christ, the sight of Jesus Christ. 
The Christian faith, therefore, is built upon the historical fact of the resurrection, which gives us, by grace and faith, a reconciliation today, a true new life and reality today, but it does not stop with today. It is unto this, the glorious state of Christ upon that final day. That is exactly what I believe John and Peter are getting at. It's kind of exactly the same thing in the the New Testament where Paul, first called Saul, doesn't see Christ, spiritually speaking. He's blinded. And then he sees Christ. And then what happens? He's blinded in the natural. And then someone comes to pray for him, and then he sees. The point is this, that Thomas didn't see in the spiritual and didn't see in the natural. He then saw in the natural, and that became for him sight in the spiritual. But for you and I, though we do not see him physically, we know we have seen him spiritually. And the great hope is this, that I will look upon my Redeemer in the land of the living. This is what the Christian faith has. Greater than gold, greater than eternal life in some happy, blissful state, you will look upon Jesus Christ himself. You will behold him with unveiled eye, and that itself is the great salvation which is given to you in the Christian faith. You will see God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would give to us this great hope. We know that 1 John tells us that those who have this sort of hope, that they have the hope of seeing you, will purify themselves as you are pure. Father, we ask that you would give us the great grace of making that hope that one day we will stand before you and we will be able to see you in your glory, that that would pervade and and become the source and center of all of our lives. That day by day, we would examine our lives and we would search through your word in order to see Christ more and more by faith. Father, I pray that you would give us the great grace of laying hold of the truths of your word And that that would become fuel for perseverance. And not only perseverance, but an actual beholding by faith of your son unto one day, a final day when we see him face to face. Lord, we pray that all of the other things that are in our lives, whether they be family ambitions or getting married or having a job or buying a house or or even being great in the gospel and being a wonderful evangelist, that every possible blessing would be subjugated to the true blessing, which is knowing who you are and seeing you face to face. God, we know that only you can accomplish this, so we invite you to do so by your spirit, for the glory of your Son and the glory of his kingdom. Amen.